And I have looked forward to today probably more than you've looked forward to today. You always look forward to chapel, but I knew today I was going to get a chance to stand here and speak God's word. And I've been anticipating that and praying for that. And I'm so grateful to be here. I want to thank Pastor Chapel and the administration and others that have opened the door to give me this opportunity. And I'm just thrilled to be with you. I was thinking this morning, I've been here now over 20 years. I came in 2001 as an 18-year-old from a little farm town in Minnesota and came out here first time I ever set foot on in California was the day I came out here to uh, enroll in classes at West Coast Baptist College. Knew absolutely nothing about it. I thought everyone in California was either a gangster thug or was a rock star or movie star with big, you know. Uh, do you, anybody remember the spinner rims that people used to put on their Humvees and stuff? I mean, just the, the bling stuff. And I just, I didn't know what I was getting into. And uh, my experience over the last little bit is, has revealed I surely didn't know what I was getting into, but it wasn't what I expected. And uh, what a journey. God has used the last 20 years in my life in such a powerful way, and God has used this place in my life in such a powerful way, and I can only trust that he's doing that for you as well. Well, over those 20 years, I hear Dr. Asmussen nearly 100 chapel messages every year which would mean I'm about at 2,000 uh, chapel messages, not counting church or anything else. That's a lot of messages that, I, that I've heard. And I appreciate the emphasis that we have uh, here at Lancaster Baptist Church and at West Coast Baptist College on preaching. I know I benefited from that. And, and not only the, the, the fact of preaching, but the content of preaching, that we are preaching the word. And that really is where the emphasis is. Brother Bert uh, referred to that a moment ago. Uh, the reality is, at the end of the day, the authority in preaching doesn't come from someone's personal experience or someone's academic credentials or someone's uh, ecclesiastical office or someone's presentation ability. All authority in preaching comes from faithfulness to the text. It's the only one source of authority when it comes to uh, a message. And I appreciate the emphasis on expositing God's word. And I trust that God will allow us to see some things in his word today. If you have a Bible with you, I trust you do. Let's go to Romans chapter number 10. And we'll see one of, one of the many incredible passages here in the book of Romans. I always feel the need to kind of catch you up on the story when we start in the middle of a book. Whenever we don't start with chapter 1, verse 1, you open it right in the middle. Some things have already happened. So let me kind of catch you up on this. Paul is writing to a church that he's never visited. This is a church that he hadn't planted. He'd never been to visit these people. So he's writing to this church. He knows a lot of people there because he knows a lot of people. But he's never been to the church at Rome. So he's writing this letter, and the theme of Romans is the gospel. And as he really unpacks that throughout this, he takes chapters 1 through 3, and he talks about everyone is condemned. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or a Greek or one of uh, Hebrew. Everyone is condemned. Then chapters number 4 through 5, he talks about how can God justify those who are uh, Condemned. How does God go? How does God take you from condemned, chapters one through three, to justified, chapters four and five, and then chapters six through eight? He talks about sanctification. How is it that we become sanctified in that growing Christian life? And then he gets chapter nine, and he takes a little bit of a three-chapter detour, and he goes off and he, he he addresses a side topic, and that topic is Israel. The question is, is God done with Israel? And the answer is no. 
But it takes Paul a couple chapters to say that. In chapter number 9, he begins by saying, I have this continual sorrow in my heart for my people. Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And yet he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he had this continual sorrow in his heart for his people. That theme hasn't left as we arrive in verse number, chapter number 10. Chapter number 10, he's, he's still talking about his desire for Israel to get saved. And he lists in this chapter 10 different parts or reasons for that burden. Now, we're not going to have time to unpack all 10 of those this morning, unless we stay well past lunch. Uh, but I think we can get to the first three of them in the text this morning. And if you've got your Bible now and have found Romans chapter number 1, Romans rather chapter 10 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Let's pray again. Father, as we open your word now and as we come to you, I pray that you'd help us to uh, clear our minds for the next few minutes. I pray, Father, that you would allow your word to have entrance. Lord, we ask that your spirit would use uh, your word to bring about your work in our lives because we understand that as you grow and develop us, you'll be better able to use us to uh, fulfill the mission that you've called us to fulfill. Lord, I pray for your enabling this morning. You know that I'm not worthy to stand here and I'm not uh, Lord, depending on that, I just pray that you would help this to be a time when uh, you are honored and glorified. And Father, we'll promise to thank you for all that you do in the next few minutes of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Paul, as we've already mentioned, is one of these people that has this consistency of purpose. We see it in some extent prior to his salvation. And man, once he meets Christ, we see he is laser focused on what God has called him to do. And one of the things that was continually on his heart was the salvation of his people. He knew he wasn't called to be the apostle to the circumcision. Galatians chapter number one, that was Peter in that role and many other people. Even though the church was predominantly Jewish in the first couple generations, Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he knows that. And he knows what his mission is. And he's argued for that on the Mars Hill or, or Acts chapter 15 in Jerusalem that the Gentiles should be able to join the church. And of course, as the church is figuring that out, that's Paul's mission. And yet here, he takes a step back and he says, you know what I'm really concerned about? What I'm really burdened for? How many of you recognize that it's, it's possible to carry a burden and to have a heart for something that may not be something that you're directly called to go fix. And Paul says, Paul was, of course, he went to the, the uh, place of the Jews. He went to the uh, synagogues and he talked to the Jews. He was very consistent in witnessing to the Jews. But he was, a lot of times, he was out there where a lot of Gentiles were. But he says in this passage, I have this burden for the salvation of my people. He's already talked about that in chapter number 9, and in chapter number 10, he's going to ask the question, okay, if God's working with Gentiles, is he done with the Jewish people? And the answer is, God forbid, right? If, if, if the Gentiles are getting saved, maybe it'll make them a little bit jealous, and he talks about that in chapter number 10. 
Now here in chapter 9, he gives us several reasons, and we'll look at these three reasons why he carried this burden for the Jewish people. And the first one we see here in verse number 2, they all begin with this word for. In Greek, it's a post-positive conjunction, gar, if you've understood uh, Greek. It, it translates as before or sometimes because of. He's giving us a reason. Now, verse number 2, why, Paul, do you have this burden for your people? He says, number 2, for I bear them record, or I, I give witness to this. He had personal experience with this, that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. The first reason is because Israel had zeal without knowledge. It's easy to identify the zeal of the Jewish people. They were passionate for God. They were a God-intoxicated people, one writer said. And the Jews, when it came to fulfilling the law, they were, they were, that was a big deal to them. In fact, the Jewish writings from later centuries, we have a lot of older ones, but one of them goes all the way to the second century, close to the time of Christ. And when it talks about this commandment of keeping the Sabbath, it has 39 categories of work that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And under some of those categories, they're subdivided. You've got all these rules and all these things that the Jews would memorize and try to follow. And it's an incredible thing to see a Jew follow the law. If you've ever been in a Jewish home, you know that they want to eat only kosher food. It meets all of these stipulations. In fact, if you've been in their home, you know that Jewish homes always, if they're practicing Jews, have two kitchens. They've got two kettles, they've got uh, two pans, they've got two of everything, they've got two sets of dishes and two sets of silverware. Why? Well, because one of them is for if they eat meat and one of them is for if they eat something with milk. And it all goes back to one obscure command in the Old Testament to not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And because of that, they have two kitchens in a kosher Jewish home. It's amazing. The Jews, if you go over to Israel and if you stay at a hotel on, from Friday night through uh, Saturday, if you walk into an uh, elevator that goes up, none of the buttons work. You've got to stand there. It goes to one, one floor and then the next floor and the next floor and the next floor because they don't want to push a button because God said don't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. A couple years ago, I was in Israel, and I was at a hotel, and I was getting a little bit sleepy, and I went up to get a, a coffee, and they said, I'm sorry, we can't give you a coffee. And I said, oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were closed. They said, yeah, we're closed for the Sabbath. And I looked up, and the sun was still 20 degrees above the horizon on a Friday afternoon, and I, I simply said, okay. And I walked away, and I thought, it's not even sundown yet. Sabbath hasn't started. I want a coffee. But they wouldn't give me a coffee. In fact, that Saturday, that was a Friday, that Saturday we stayed at a hotel. Some of the students from West Coast were with me a couple years ago, and we were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And on Sunday morning, because this was a kosher hotel, when we got done, uh, we had to leave, and we had to carry our bags from the hotel down this long driveway, beautiful driveway, kind of uh, hilly and windy, all the way out to the street where the buses were parked. Anybody want to guess why the buses couldn't pull up to the door? Because on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to work. So instead of the buses pulling up to the door and us standing right on them, we had to walk about a quarter of a mile. How many of you think that sounded like work, right? But somehow, in their keeping of the law, that made sense. And the Jews were very zealous for what they believed. But what Paul says here is, here's the problem. They weren't low on zeal, but they had zeal without knowledge. Young person, don't ever apologize to anyone for being in a... Bible college. Don't ever apologize to anyone for developing your knowledge of the Word of God. 
Don't be the person who has an excess of zeal but lacks knowledge because I've got something to tell you. There is no amount of zeal that can make up for a deficiency in knowledge when it comes to God, theology, and the Word of God. No amount of zeal can cover for that. And what you see in this passage is Paul has this burden because Israel, they, they knew some things, but they weren't following the truth of God. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus himself says, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. You recognize that we don't want to be the person that has the most passion and the least knowledge. Somebody that is uh, very uh, zealous, but we don't know what we're talking about. It, it's not a good thing to be ignorant as a Christian. Now, God doesn't prefer smart people. God doesn't uh, elevate educated people. In fact, there's some dangers that can come with being uh, really smart or really educated, and it's possible for knowledge to cause pride, but the problem is the pride, not the knowledge. And the reality is, is you and I as Bible college students have to recognize the priority of knowing the Word of God. Don't use terms like expert or scholar as a pejorative because sure, someone can be an expert and a scholar and ungodly, but the problem isn't that you know too much about God. And the problem isn't that you know too much about theology or the problem is never that you know too much about the Word of God. This last summer, I was in Nicaragua. Some of you were with me. Who was in Nicaragua with me? Raise your hand. Where's my Nicaragua team? We got, I think, uh, nine of us were there. It was a fantastic trip, and we were there with the Portillos. He'll be here, I think, on campus in about a couple of weeks, and I hope you guys get a chance to meet the Portillos. But I was sitting out on this crumbling cement uh, step out in front of a, a hotel that we stayed in. He gave us a really nice hotel in the area and uh, didn't have any hot water or anything, but it was a very nice hotel, about the best that they had. And we were sitting out front and I was reading my Bible one morning and I saw this parade coming down the road. Never seen anything like it. There weren't clowns or uh, horses or uh, some of the things I associate with the parade, but there were these musical instruments and somebody carrying a banner and it looked like they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And there's these people dressed from head to toe in this really somber black and white garb. And I just sat there awestruck and I watched this procession of people come and turn right and go down and turn right. And the whole time I could hear the music. And apparently they turned another right because a moment later they came back around the block and they turned right again and they came down. And I asked um, Mr. Portillo after what was going on in my neighborhood. I described the event. And he was like, oh yeah, that's something that the Catholics here do a lot. They'll pay someone from the church to come and to bless a neighborhood or to bless a street or to bless their block or house, and that's what they do. They'll just march around, they'll play instruments, and, they'll, and I, I learned that thing that they were carrying was an image of the Virgin Mary. And here's somebody that has a lot of zeal. Here's someone who has very, very little. A full-time construction worker in Nicaragua, if they're paid $60 a week, they're making far above the prevailing wage. They don't have a whole lot, but what they have, they sacrifice and they save and they give to the church so that somebody can walk around their block carrying an image of the Virgin Mary. That's a lot of zeal. That's not a lot of knowledge. And we see in this passage, Paul says, I see that dynamic with my people. I see the Jewish people, and, and they're, they're, they're faithful, and they're disciplined, and they're sacrificial, and, and they lack knowledge. Paul gives us a second reason for this passion that he had for his people. The first one was Israel had zeal without knowledge. Verse number three gives us another reason. 
A second listed here, he says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness are going about to establish their own righteousness. The problem was they were ignorant of God's righteousness. What an amazing claim. I have said things in the past that I don't think are quite true. I've said things like this. God does, the good news is God doesn't demand perfection. God demands progress. I've said that before. But you know what? That's not the good news. The good news isn't that God doesn't demand perfection. God demands progress. Guess what? The bad news is God does demand perfection. God does demand holiness. You know what God demands? Righteousness. That's God's demand. Nothing short of righteousness will satisfy him. And the good news is, not that you can get there, not that you can develop it, not that if you work hard enough and go to enough uh, Sunday school classes and memorize enough verses of Scripture and pray long enough and fast a, a requisite number of days and make sure that you avoid the movie theater and avoid the bad music and avoid doing bad things with your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend and uh, avoid saying bad words. If you do all the right things and you avoid all the bad things, then you can be righteous. That's not good news. And that's not true. Because the reality is that there is only one righteousness in the world. It's either God's righteousness or it's unrighteousness. And what Paul is saying, there's a whole group of people, and they're God's people, they're Hebrew people, they're children of Abraham. And you know what the problem with these people are is they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. How do you understand how big of a problem that is? Because if there's only one righteousness, and if I have to be righteous in order to uh, have a home in heaven, and I'm ignorant of God's righteousness, I'm without hope. So we see in this passage this description of, of this righteousness that they're ignorant of. We know 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, I think verse 21, or right there toward the end of the chapter, the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin, sin for us, why? That we might be made the righteousness of in him. That's where your righteousness is. Righteousness is in him. Righteousness is God's righteousness. How much righteousness do you think you have? Zero. How much righteousness can you ever hope to have? Zero. Where is the source of righteousness? There's only one source. And God made him sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How have you, how have you, you this isn't news to you, I don't think, but how have you recognized that when you're saved, when you're forgiven, when you become a child of God, you're not merely forgiven of your sin. We use that language, right? God will forgive you of your sin, and surely he does, but it's not mere forgiveness of your sin that happens at salvation. You know what happens? You have a credit to your account of the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, not just because your sin is gone, that's true, but when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of God in you because you're in Christ. And Paul says, hey, they're ignorant of that. They don't understand the righteousness of God. And then verse number three is fascinating to me because it tells me how do you know if you know the righteousness of God? What are the signs? What's the test that you might fail by not understanding the righteousness of God. Well, it's right there in verse number three. Because they didn't understand the righteousness of God, they were ignorant 
of the righteousness of God. What's the result of being ignorant of God's righteousness? Here it is. It's always the same. Going about to establish their own righteousness. That's what happens. When people are ignorant of the righteousness of God, they go about to establish their own righteousness. And we've seen a lot of people trying to establish their own righteousness, right? I saw it this summer in Nicaragua with the, the Roman Catholics marching around the block. That was somebody trying to establish their own righteousness. I've seen it in, in uh, the news, I think, over the last couple of, of uh, months or years of people that take a cause and they're willing to fight for it and they're willing to, to be radical about it. And you know, at the end of the day, they view themselves as righteous. And what Paul is saying here is, when you're going about to establish your own righteousness, it's a sure sign that you're ignorant of the righteousness of God. And that's exactly what the Jews were doing. That's exactly what he sees them doing. In fact, if you've got your Bible still open, let's go back to Romans chapter number 3. We're familiar with this passage, right? Romans 3 is probably something that all of us have at least a little bit of it memorized. In fact, when I say Romans 3, what verse comes to mind? Romans 3, 23, anybody think that? Hey, let's back up two verses. Let's go Romans 3, 21. 3, 21, the Bible says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by the faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon, upon all that believe. And all that believe, for there is no difference. Do you realize the law has always been unable to produce righteousness? The purpose of the law was always to point out our need for the righteousness of God. In this passage, Paul says, I'm burdened for my people because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And because of that ignorance, they've gone about to establish their own righteousness. Because of the righteousness that we have in Christ, we can be righteous. The righteousness that will get you to heaven is the righteousness of the one who walked on water, who gave sight to the blind, who resisted Satan's temptation, who suffered for your sin without showing anger, who opened his mouth only to forgive those that are responsible, who went to the cross, who died for our sins, and three days later who rose again to conquer sin in the grave, and in him we can have righteousness. Paul says, I'm concerned, I'm burdened for my people first because they, they have a zeal, but they don't have knowledge. Number two, because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And number three, in verse number four, he says, for, here's another reason, number one, you see four in verse number two, for another reason in verse number three, here's our third reason in verse four, for Christ is the end of the law to everyone that believeth. Paul said, here's another reason I'm burdened for my people. Reason number three is because Christ is the end of the law. Let me ask you a question. How much of the law is a New Testament believer bound to? The Mosaic law in the Old Testament, the Levitical law. How much of the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, are you and I required to abide by? It's a challenging question that a lot of Christians wrestle with. And yet I don't think the answer is an incredibly difficult answer. Some people say, well, okay, we are under all of the law. A Christian should follow all of the law. 
What God said in the Old Testament still applies in the New Testament, therefore we're under all of the law. But there's some pretty obvious apparent problems with that, right? I mean, it wasn't man that rent the veil in the temple when Christ died. That was God from top to bottom, right? There was something that changed with the sacrifice of Christ and the atonement that he made on the cross. I don't meet a whole lot of Christians that think they have to worship on Saturday, follow the Old Testament dietary laws, and do a whole bunch of other things. I've never met a Christian who thinks they have to bring a blood sacrifice for their sin. How many understand if you think you have to bring a blood sacrifice for your sin, you don't know the gospel, right? The gospel is Christ is that lamb. So we know that we're not under all of the Old Testament law. That's pretty obvious. A lot of Christians take option B. They say, okay, we're under some of the Old Testament law. I mean, obviously there are some things that are wrong for an Old Testament follower of God that are still wrong for us today, right? That's pretty obvious. Uh, we just last night in many of our adult Sunday school classes taught on Joseph and, and, and uh, Joseph and he resisted temptation. What a great story. And there's other examples where you go through the Old Testament and you find, hey, Adultery is wrong in the Old Testament, adultery is wrong today. Uh, lying is wrong in the Old Testament, lying is wrong today. Having idols, worshiping other gods is wrong in the Old Testament, and it's wrong today. So people say, okay, we're under some of the law. But the problem then is to answer, well, what part? What part of the law are we under? People say, well, we're under the ceremonial, there's the ceremonial law, we're not under that. There's the civil law, we're not under that. Then there's the moral law, that's the part of the law we're under. Problem is, how do you know what parts of the law you're under or not? This is a kind of a fun example that illustrates this. If I were to ask you whether or not a Christian is required to have a fence around their house on the roof, I think it's a pretty obvious answer. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 8 requires people to put a battlement, a wall, around the roof of their house. Anybody live in a house that has a wall around the roof? You may if you have a flat roof, maybe you live in a city or something, but for most of us, no. Our roofs are pitched, right? We don't have a fence around it. Why would they do that in the Old Testament? Well, because it was a flat roof, and they'd go up there, and they'd maybe hang long tree, or they'd bake their things, and the, they had an upper room sometimes up there, like where Christ had the, his Last Supper. So uh, they had, had to have a fence around the roof. Makes sense, but it doesn't apply to us today. That's pretty obvious. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 28, there's a command to not put a mark on your flesh, to not put a mark on your body. People are like, well, that's something that certainly applies to us today. And I ask, well, how do you know? Well, the, the answer usually is context, right? You know by your context. Well, here's the context of that verse. The verse right before says it's wrong to, it's wrong to shave. No shaving. That's the verse before. The verse right after it says it's wrong to uh, put your daughter into pot prostitution. So how does the context help me with that verse? The challenge when we approach the Old Testament, we try to ferret out these different aspects of the law is that the context never bears that out. Is a Christian under all of the Old Testament law? No, that's obviously not true. Is the Christian under some of the Old Testament law? Well, that seems plausible at first, but here's the problem. Why isn't a Christian under all of the law? The reason is because of, it's a name, I'll give you a hint. The reason is because of 
Jesus, right? Jesus is the right answer. Because of Jesus, you don't have to bring a sacrifice to the temple. It's because of Jesus that you don't have to have a priest be an intermediary between you and God. It's because of Jesus that you can have the Holy Spirit indwell you. It's because of Jesus, right? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. And guess what? Jesus didn't only fulfill some of the law. Jesus fulfilled all of the law. Now, I understand that there are things in the law that are still wrong for us today, but they were wrong before the law, too. We talked about Joseph a moment ago, but if you think about it, Joseph lived prior to Moses, right? Ten commandments hadn't been given yet. Was it wrong, yes or no, for Joseph to commit adultery? Would it have been wrong? Absolutely, right? But the Ten Commandments hadn't been given. Didn't the Ten Commandments make adultery wrong? No. Adultery is, wrong. Uh, the adultery is said to be wrong in the law because it was wrong. It's not wrong because it was in the law. So if something was right or wrong before the law, it didn't become wrong to worship idols when the Ten Commandments were given. It was already wrong. So when we understand that, of course those are still going to apply to us in the New Testament today, but not because they're in the law, not because Jesus fulfilled only part of the law, because in fact Christ fulfilled all of the law. How much law is a Christian responsible for from the law of Moses? The answer is none of it. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion under you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Law is contrasted with grace in Romans 6. In Galatians 5, 18, the Bible says, but if ye are led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. The law is contrasted with the Spirit in, Romans, uh, in uh, Galatians 5, 18. In Romans 7, 4, the Bible says, wherefore, my brethren, ye also become dead to the law by the body of Christ. The law is antiquated because of Jesus Christ. Philip Bliss, the classic hymn writer of the 1800s, got it right. When he wrote, free from the law, O happy condition, Christ, Jesus has bled and there is remissioned. Cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. As Paul opens this passage, he opens his heart in a way that very rarely does he do in the New Testament. Have you ever found that you can have a friend and you can know him for a long time and then there's a conversation or there's an experience you have and you feel like, man, I really got to know him then. Somebody maybe is really vulnerable one night, late at night, or they're going through something hard and they just pour their heart out to you. They just open themselves up and you feel like, man, I just saw, I just saw a depth of what's going on in their heart and in their mind that, that it's a new level. Like, wow, I, I really got to know them here. That's what Paul does for us in chapters I think, 9 and 10 of Romans. Paul just opens his heart up and says, guys, I've got a burden. I've got a continual sorrow, he calls it, in chapter number 9. I have something that is it just, it's just always with me, and I'm, I'm concerned for the salvation of my people, of the Jewish people. And if we were to ask him today, why, Paul, why is that such a continual burden for you? I think Paul would say, well, let me give you a couple reasons. Here's three of them. Number one, they are zealous but ignorant. They have a zeal without knowledge. Young person, it's always dangerous to have a zeal without knowledge. No amount of zeal can make up for a lack of truth. He says, number two, I'm burdened for them because they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Paul, how do you know that they're ignorant of God's righteousness? They go about establishing their own righteousness. Young person, it's always dangerous to be ignorant 
of the righteousness of God. And he says, the test is, they're going around trying to establish this righteousness on their own merit. And he says, another reason why I'm so burdened for my people is because Christ is the end of the law. He's the telos. He's the purpose, the aim, and the culmination of it all in one. Christ fulfilled the law. And Paul says, I need my people to understand that because these roadblocks are keeping them from experiencing the salvation and the redemption that I desire and God desires.